1: i could stay here forever
0: carvana where car buying meets comfort meets convenience download the app or visit carvana.com today
1: welcome to the cynical podcast a weekly discussion of current affairs in china brought to you by the china project subscribe to the china project to get the early release ad-free version of this podcast every week, and of course, our daily newsletter, the best way there is to stay informed about China. You'll also have access to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. And if you like this podcast, you will love our next China event on November 2nd in New York with a special VIP evening featuring a live Seneca podcast the night before on November 1st. It's going to be a night and a day of the most interesting and informative discussions on China you'll hear this year and great networking opportunities as well. Please come and introduce yourself to me and to Jeremy and to the others at The China Project, and I will talk more about this before recommendations. Fifty years ago, the Philadelphia Orchestra, led by its famed conductor Eugene Ormandy, went to Beijing to perform, and it made history. It was a seminal event, not just in the popularization and development of classical music in China, but also in the diplomatic history of the two countries. I am not going to dwell too much today on the actual visit or even on its enduring impact, but we'll focus instead on a commemorative event being held right here in Chapel Hill that has brought some dear ones into town for the occasion, as you will soon hear. Now, if listeners want a refresher on the Philadelphia Orchestra's trip 50 years ago, I'll make sure to link in the show notes to a podcast that I taped in 2021 in honor of the debut of a film called Beethoven in Beijing. For that show, I talked to Jennifer Lin, the journalist and filmmaker who made that film, as well as to the composer and conductor, Tsai Jingdong, and the cultural writer, Sheila Melvin. The two of them are a terrific couple who work closely with Jennifer on Beethoven in Beijing, and their book, Rhapsody in Red, which is all about classical music in China, is one that I would highly recommend. But today, we've got three guests who, to my delight, are here in the studio in Chapel Hill to talk about some commemorative concerts by the Philadelphia Orchestra with its very exciting conductor, Yannick Nizé-Sigan, 50 years ago to the day of the closing concerts of that storied Beijing tour on September 20th and 21st, 1973. And not only that, but on the second night, Thursday the 21st they will be performing among other selections an original composition called Hello Gold Mountain by the Beijing-born composer and guzheng virtuoso Wu Fei Wu Fei I should hasten to add married a certain South African-born Beijing rascal who is sometimes known to co-host this show Mr. Jiumi Jeremy Goldcorn editor-in-chief of The China Project we will introduce Faye properly in just a little bit, but first, I am honored and delighted to be joined by Matias Tarnopolsky, who is the president and CEO of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and who in that role was instrumental in making this commemoration of that historic visit possible, and in keeping alive the invaluable ongoing exchanges between the Philadelphia Orchestra and musicians in China over the intervening years. Matias, welcome, and I understand you used to be the director of California performances. And as a golden bear myself, uh, I've seen many, many fine performances at Zollerbach and, and other venues. So go Bears. And uh, thanks for all you did there at my alma mater.
2: Go Bears. Uh, thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today.
1: I'm also thrilled to finally have my dear friend Allison Friedman on the show. Allison, as listeners to our show, will recall from her previous turns on Seneca, was a longtime denizen of Beijing, who really made her mark by creating and running ping-pong productions, which brought performing arts from the United States to China and Chinese fine arts to the U.S., very much in the same spirit as the Philadelphia Orchestra under Eugene Ormandy 50 years ago. So Allison then went on to serve as artistic director for performances at the storied West Kowloon Cultural District in Hong Kong for several years before. To my great delight, she came here to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where she was hired to serve as the James and Susan Moser Executive and Artistic Director for UNC's Carolina Performing Arts. She has already made a huge splash here and has uh, kept up her ties to greater China in ways that have very much enriched our community. Uh, earlier this year she pulled off a remarkable feat by inviting the hong kong ballet which was performing romeo and juliet in new york to add a single stop to their itinerary they performed right here in chapel hill and though i was away and didn't see it i think i was actually in davos at the time
3: something small yeah something like <laughs> uh, anyway
1: uh anyway as i said they added just this one stop and it happened to be right here in my town chapel hill north carolina and uh It was, by all accounts, just absolutely amazing. I saw lots of video uh, and and photos, Uh, really bummed that I missed it. But Allison, it's just so great to have you here, just to be able to see all the time and have lunch together and stuff. It's just, it's wonderful. And welcome back at long last to Seneca.
3: It's good to be back. Thanks for having me.
1: And of course, we are also joined by Wu Fei, who is headlining the performance on Thursday evening, uh, and at which I will be in attendance. Wu Fei is a classically trained musician, a graduate of the prestigious China Conservatory, where she studied composition. She's a prolific composer whose work crosses both geography and genre, and she's also a really gifted vocalist. If you haven't heard her work with Abigail Washburn in their duo Wu Force, Check out the cynical podcast that we recorded with them several years ago, which has some not half bad live recordings that I managed to do right there in the little Airbnb where we taped in New York. Uh, Faye, what a pleasure to see you here and welcome back to Chapel Hill.
0: Yes, thank you for having me back, Kaiser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great to have
1: it's you. Exciting. Having. So, Matthias, let's let's start with you and let's talk about the Philadelphia Orchestra and its relationship to China. Is this something that the current members of the orchestra are still very much aware of and actively conscious of? Uh, Has this become, in other words, part of the orchestra's overall identity to to any extent?
2: Yes. We have two members still serving in the orchestra, uh, Renard Edwards in the viola section, David Booth. Violinist who were on that tour in 1973. Wow! And uh, they're they're here in uh, Chapel Hill right now, sharing their stories with uh, students and audiences here as part of this as part of this residency. The connection to China is in the orchestra's DNA at this stage. Phil Cates, another violinist, whenever we go to Beijing, he goes and plays at the pediatric hospital that's across the street from from the hotel where the orchestra stays. It's It's now a multi generational relationship. I'm always struck when we go to China and meet people who were either at that concert in 1973 or whose parents or grandparents were there. And I hear stories frequently. I mean, whenever we're there, I hear stories. Oh, yeah, my grandparents were there. And throughout my upbringing, we always talked about that concert. And so it's part of their consciousness. So we're now into the third and fourth generation of that occasion. And it's not achieved this sort of mythic status. It's very precious and very treasured and very real. And the fact that the Philadelphia Orchestra continues to go personalizes that historic, seemingly distant event in ways
1: that are personal and real and deeply connected. They, uh just as we were setting up all the equipment, I overheard you say something about you having sort of a, a lineage that's connected to the Philadelphia Orchestra and its 1973 show. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes. When I was in high school, that was part of the China Conservatory of Music already, and I was deciding whether to go through uh, conducting, orchestra conducting, mm-hmm. or composition. And so my conducting teacher at the time was... Conductor Chu Shi And he was uh, one of the five Young conductors uh, Of the China National Symphony At the time it was called 中央乐团. It was mm-hmm. still called the Central Orchestra Now it's the China uh, National Symphony And then he- his boss Or uh, mentor was Maestro Li De Lun mm-hmm. Which, which uh, was Educated by uh, uh, Jewish refugee musicians From Vienna in Shanghai and then, and then, my conducting teacher, as a young um conductor, was at the one of the not only the concert but also at the one of the the workshops oh. as well, because he graduated as conductor from central conservative music oh that's so that was there was, yeah, because at that time, China was uh, still trying to catch up with a lot of things, and then there was very few conductors. And then my conducting professor was one of the promising that uh, young conductors at the time. So, uh, yeah, so much. So I'm one of the the hundreds of millions of children in my generation that has been inspired and uh, dreaming, practicing in the rehearsal, dreaming. Ah, one day I'll get to play like that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, you, you hit on something really interesting, which is whenever the Philadelphia Orchestra goes, the musicians always fan out in the communities and work with kids and students and civic centers and community centers. And perhaps the most, for me, one of the most expi- inspiring experiences like that was when a group of musicians went to Minzu University, uh, which is a university just, as, as you all know, yeah, yeah. but it was totally new to me. And I've, it, it was one of the most inspiring days of my life, a university dedicated to Chinese folk traditions. Mm. And we, there was a group of musicians were there. Yannick, our music and artistic director, were there, and we worked a whole day with dance traditions, music traditions, choral traditions from around China. Wow! It, it was unbelievable. I've got some amazing photos in my Was Minzu
1: University? So, Allison, maybe you can explain to me how it is that you managed to make Chapel Hill of all places. The locus for the convergence of so much talent for the commemoration of something that was just so historic.
3: You know, I'll have to start with a Chinese word, which is Yuan Fen. Uh-huh. Yuan Fen translated as something like fate or destiny or people who are meant to meet. I also think of it as a crossroads. So today actually came about from a conversation that Matthias and I had when I first arrived from China to Carolina. <laughs> I went uh, <laughs> and I have to give Abigail Washburn credit for that line. Right. Uh, um, we were chatting because Matthias used to, as you mentioned, uh, be at Berkeley running a major performing arts uh, institution at a major university. And so I was seeking his good advice. Uh, we also have mutual friends back in Hong Kong at the, at Hong Kong Academy of Performing Arts, and we were chatting about the upcoming anniversary with China and the tour, and the conversation was wide-ranging about how, what is the meaning of arts and cultural exchanges in a divided world? And where and when does it actually build bridges? And when is it just fluffy marketing copy? And that conversation was so inspiring to me. I thought, well, that's why we work at universities is to have those conversations. So can we bring this incredible organization to our community here for a concert and activate our research university networks to have that broader conversation that we started on the phone. So that was the, the seed of the inspiration. And then, of course, all of the logistics of planning major touring orchestras begin with scheduling, budgets, planning. Uh, Yannick's schedule is another Sudoku puzzle to figure out. But those are the, the easy logistics. Really starting with that inspiration of meaning was, was how yeah. it began.
1: Amazing. So glad that it came together the way that it did. So, Matthias, just now you mentioned that there were two members of the original Philadelphia Orchestra who went to China in 1973. Uh, David Booth, who I remember from the film, Beethoven in Beijing, uh, because he features pretty prominently in that. And also Reynard Edwards, who is a violist. Fifty years on, I can only imagine how invested that is with significance for, for both of them. They must be getting long in years, they must be what in their in their seventies now, maybe even late seventies well you know they probably started in their early
2: twenties okay, so okay I don't know how old they are, but they probably yeah, they must be in their their early seventies late six- maybe even late sixties. I mean, you know people start young in this profession, but yeah, let's say they joined in their early twenties, so they would be in their early seventies amazing, so they're
1: still actively performing then brilliantly, so oh, yes wonderful, absolutely. Wonderful. And I understand they're doing a couple of engagements with the public here in Chapel Hill. So what have their engagements been like? What are they talking about? And what is it that people in the audiences have been interested in learning from them?
2: What's really interesting for them is that they, uh, Americans and America had no idea about China. And or American people didn't know about Chinese people and vice versa. And so they talk about the human connections more than anything else. And and that is the most sort of moving and powerful aspect about it. Of course, you know, the incredible reception that the orchestra received in 1973, the, the, the massive import of this group landing in China, you know, six years before diplomatic relations, right, as the first American orchestra. I mean, it was just imbued with firsts. But ultimately, it was about that people-to-people connection that I think impacts them to this day. I can imagine. Could I add something else? Absolutely. You know, it, it takes visionaries to do what Alison has done, and she is a true visionary. Um, she's a little modest in her recounting of that <laughs> first phone call, so I do have to correct fast. the record a bit, because my recollection is, maybe it was the second phone call, but I don't know. My recollection was that I called you to get advice on probably something that, that you, you all have thought about a lot, which is, what does it mean today for an American orchestra to be... Traveling to China, um, you know. In your opening remark, you, you talked about human rights abuses and things that are very, very real. Um, and our feeling that, in going, we 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 just wanted to be sure people understood this is about the connection between people. And um, Alison's helped us, me, us, and the organization think very differently about that and in a very positive way. And it was able to remind us that often this is the only level of connection and communication that works. That's right. And that we need to keep doing it, whatever's happening.
1: Matthias, Allison is known for her Zheng Neng liang for the positive energy she always brings to every project she works on. Uh, but Allison, I have to imagine that the past few years just cannot have been an easy time for people like you who are are so personally dedicated to cultural exchange or perhaps it's the case that all the the hostility in the air uh both here in the u.s and i should hasten to add in china hasn't been woken up some people to the the urgency of getting behind cultural exchange for lack of anything else we can grab onto
3: i think i think you've both put it perfectly i think At times when it's the hardest, these are the times that um, you need to find any route available to you. And I think logistics perhaps get more challenging, but I find on both sides... there are enough people that actually want things like this to happen and in this case you know you, you do say that the the tensions the US China tensions are rife on both sides and i feel it very strongly here to the point that in some of our early discussions about having this concert be such uh, heavily china focused my concerns had very little to do with any sensitivities with the china side it was whether or not the north carolina legislature might suddenly have sensitivities about being focused on China. And that's a change, you know, in leaving China and moving here, I wasn't expecting those kinds of, of dances to start. Wow. So um, it everything's gone smoothly. Everything's wonderful. So some of those, you know, I think we do ourselves a disservice by feeding into some of the uh, anxiety and the drama around it, because this was often my response when, when I was working in China and, and people in the States would ask about censorship or ask about Oh, aren't you nervous? And the broader context is they're not paying attention. (laughs) You know, there's I would like to think we're that important that we're under the microscope. But the reality is there are much larger fish to fry that if you can just get on with it on a very grassroots daily level, there's so much momentum and support at that level that wants to keep going. And as long as I I, I like to think of it, a a friend of mine put it quite well, you know, a musical exchange isn't necessarily going to solve massive geopolitical problems, but it will continue to create environments in which the people that need to solve them will have a more favorable environment to do so. And, th- and I think that's where I think of the work that we're doing is almost like um, seasoning the pot with the right seasons so that it doesn't overboil into something really ugly and, and that we can't come back from. So that's where that's where we need to um, with all of our collaborators on, on all sides, uh, China, the U.S., um, elsewhere, to continue this kind of work that just keeps the pot seasoned with with the context that we're all swimming in to um, be more conducive to other discussions.
1: Wise words. Faye, it's been, what, getting on 10 years now since you and Jeremy and the kids moved to Tennessee, moved to the States, and you have been so active in the U.S.-China cultural space. Uh, it's, it's to the point where I have lost track of the number of times where I'm speaking at some event and you're performing there. <laughs> uh, so So I, I want to ask, in the last few years... As things have gotten so hostile between China and the U.S., has the interest in U.S.-China culture exchange maybe started to fall off from what you can tell just based on the demand for for your art?
0: Uh, I think it has kept strong, Um, not even intentionally, because I am from, my root is from Beijing, and so I don't even think about, oh, how do I... Maximize that. I don't ever think about it, mm. but, but that's just who I am. So I think my focus has been: art is individual first. Even you think of a you know, large orchestra, it is made up by each person. You know, one every drop counts. It's all one a person to person. One composition was re- written by one person that has been played by thousands of people or millions of people around the world. Is is Every one person's story. So I think that I think about that. If I keep going, not thinking about what kind of mission I have, it's I can't control what people think of me. Right. But I already know I I carry, I come with that big picture. And if as much as I can do, and uh, I look for beauty, I I go after beauty, Mm. I want to, that's it. it. I think uh if 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 all the people can think of is we are all humans and that whatever the political uh, the thing that they stir up a little uh, we can eventually s- separate ourselves from there just uh, we all want beauty we that's a, that's it but it's not so it's, it's simple so easy but uh yeah so I don't think about it constantly uh, in, intentionally at all
1: Allison, what's it been like for you navigating the politics of this particular community of the Chinese diaspora that is here in North Carolina? Uh, I guess it's no surprise that there are a lot of Chinese people here because, you know, there's a large university cluster. There's a really active tech community. But, you know, as I discovered, you know, soon after after landing here, there there's a lot of, you know, political polarization within the Chinese community. Um, what has it been like for you navigating that? Has that caused any problems for you at all?
3: So far in the just under two years that I've been here, not at all. And I think some of that is related to what we've been discussing in terms of the appreciation for bringing culture to Chapel Hill. Um, I wasn't sure if I would experience that, for example, bringing Hong Kong ballet, very specifically Hong Kong. And uh, thanks actually to your introduction to Hongbin Gu, Gu Hongbin, our former uh, councilperson Mm -hmm. of Chapel Hill. She connected me to the China America Friendship Association of the community. And the overarching response has been gratitude to see more representation here in Chapel Hill. Um, I'm sure if I were, you know, give it time, I've only been here two years. And depending on what we're working on, it it potentially could have different um, perspectives come up. But so far between the um, China Undergraduate Student Association has been a great partner. Uh, the China America Friendship Association did a whole Lunar New Year celebration, celebration yeah. in front of Memorial Hall right before Hong Kong Ballet. So we had lion dances, uh, little kids doing drumming, um, uh, you know, retired aunties with their fan dances. Gosh, and
1: I'm really bummed to have missed that.
3: Oh, it was wonderful. It was such a fun celebration. About 200 people showed up just to check it out. and And so it just felt um, easy. It didn't feel fraught uh, or, yeah. or or tense. tense. You know, again, I think it depends what you're um, dealing with. But I, I think perhaps what I'm finding moving to the U.S. and moving to Chapel Hill in particular is um, there are is a growing representation. You mentioned the research triangle and, and the more tech jobs and the conglomerates that are coming here. So you do have um, growing immigrant populations across sectors, but I think from a culture and arts perspective, you haven't seen as much of that represented. So at this stage, I'm finding mostly just excitement and appreciation to see it uh on the stages in the streets of uh, Carolina.
1: Inshallah, it will remain this way. Hear, <laughs> here, here. <laughs> Matthias, the community around the Philadelphia Orchestra, the musicians themselves, and, and most of the orchestra's stakeholders, too, would tend, I imagine, to be very cosmopolitan with liberal outlooks, really international, really diverse. And as such, they are probably predisposed to like the kind of exchange that began 50 years ago but this same kind of person who's, you know, artistic and sensitive and knowledgeable and, and, and aware is also likely, I, I would guess, to be pretty alarmed by the closing of doors that's happening in China and by the the increasingly restrictive space for artistic expression and, and by, you know, expressions of this ugly ethno-nationalism uh, that, you know, I think it would be just antithetical to the orchestra's cosmopolitan spirit. So, are you finding that there's any falling off of interest on the part of the orchestra or its directors and the major donors to continue with the kind of engagement with China that helped make the Philadelphia Orchestra just such a household name in China?
2: No, because I see the opposite. Ah, uh, thank God. Um, and and it's not our first rodeo. Back to your first, your your earlier question. It, it's been fifty years, and so there's real deep familiarity with China, and not just Beijing and Shanghai. I mean, this orchestra has travelled places. Um, our supporters, the Philadelphia Orchestra family, let's let's call it that, believe that music and arts. Um, As represented by the orchestra is one of America's greatest exports and that's what we can do. I mean music is about sharing joy, beauty, connection, compassion Um, and this is what the Philadelphia Orchestra does and can do to help make the world a better place and um, that's what our Supporters, our musicians care about. So it doesn't matter what's happening out there, so to speak. And it's got bad and is getting worse. Um, You know, we were there last time in 2019. I think it was in the middle of the Asian summit. America was at another low point in diplomacy. It was in the Trump presidency. And uh, Sino American relations were really bad, really bad, and we get to meet senior politicians, senior diplomats on both sides. Uh, we, we go there apolitically, obviously, but, and they all said, please keep doing this.
1: Amen. Matthias, let's talk a little bit about the program. I am unfortunately not going to be able to see both nights. I've, I've got a ticket for a Thursday night. Uh, but what am I going to be missing on on Wednesday night, the first show? Well, we can help you out with a ticket. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> what you're going to be missing is a sort of introduction to the world of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Mm. Um, and uh, these programs were created in collaboration with Alison, right? She was very clear... With us, that this wasn't just about sort of bringing the Philadelphia Orchestra and plonking it accidentally on the days that happened to be 50 years later. Right. right? This was about how are we going to create and curate two concert programs, a series of events that tell the story. And so Allison connected us with Wu which is. Amazing, thank you, and it's a great honor to be able to play your music. But you'll already be, uh, to you already be at that concert. But Alison also said to us, it's not just about China; it's also about the Philadelphia Orchestra of now. So the main work on the uh, tomorrow night's program uh, is Florence Price's Symphony Number no. Three, mm-hmm. and the Philadelphia Orchestra musicians and their music and artistic director Yannick, have been doing deep work about reframing the repertoire and context for classical music. So the conversations that we have now around representation um, and access uh, to classical music, which the composer Florence Price did not have, she was a black woman, and she said she would have had a lot more success as a composer were it not for the issue of her race and her sex. Mm. Um, She died, I think, in 1953. And her music has been rediscovered. Yannick has been uh, an extraordinary advocate for it, won a Grammy, the orchestra and Yannick won a Grammy for a recording of, of her music. So this is uh, an introduction to the current thinking, sort of answering the question, if we'd had these conversations 50 years ago, you would have seen William Dawson, Florence Price, and many more alongside Brahms and Beethoven in the everyday repertoire. So uh, this is sort of our our response to Alison's question of, you know, what's the orchestra of today?
1: That's fantastic.
2: And then in the first half, you have a wonderful piece by the great British composer Anna Klein. Mm-hmm. So... Um, all the new music is by women, by the way, Wufei and and, and Anna. This introductory piece called "This Moment," and uh, the Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto, played by a very own concertmaster, who's an international star in his in his own right. So, you have this sort of precious, beautiful introduction to the Philadelphia Orchestra, music by Wufei and Florence Price. Uh, uh, and Wufei uh, on, on the second night, Anna Klein and, and Florence Price on the first.
1: So the second evening, which is opening with Uffe's Hello, Gold Mountain, yeah. which we're going to talk about in a yeah. bit, also includes Beethoven's sixth, the Pastoral Symphony, which has a significance, again, that ties to 50 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about that, that piece and what it means in the orchestra's history in China? Yeah.
2: Absolutely, and again, responding to—I mean, this whole thing could be like a sort of, a, a p- and <laughs> to and Alison's <laughs> brilliance, brilliance. But 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 I—but this is also a way of uh, you know really thanking you for having for having this idea.
3: Well, <laughs> oh, you suck. I'm blushing.
2: Well, uh, yeah, you you can see it. You can see it on the radio. So, um, no, but but truly, it it, it this takes thought and alison said okay and then something to celebrate the 50 years and the piece that eugene ormandy and uh, the philadelphia orchestra performed 50 years ago in shanghai and beijing was beethoven's pastoral symphony the symphony number six and there is a story that is is so good that it you know, if it's apocryphal, so be it. But but I think it's not because it was told to me by the great diplomat Nicholas Platt, who was running the China, I guess it was the China office in in America in, in China Beijing then, and and Nick said, you know, the, was it Madame Mao? I think wanted Beethoven's Sixth right, Symphony, right. right? So you all know the story. You should read it in Nick Platt's book China Boys. But but Eugene Ormandy didn't want to perform it, right? Didn't want to perform it, and Beethoven's symphony called the Pastoral is a story about nature, and the famous slow movement, which also includes, uh, which has various story headings, scenes from a brook, the wind rustling in the leaves, and then there's a storm. Nick convinced Ormandy to perform it against, really against Ormandy's wishes, by saying, you know, the pastoral symphony of Beethoven really represents China's agrarian past and presence and the struggle of the people in the (laughs) fields. I mean, he made up this whole thing, but clearly, you know, he's a diplomat, and whatever it took, it got it across the line. And what an extraordinary piece to have brought in that first visit. And, you know, hearing Yannick and the Philadelphia Orchestra perform Beethoven's Pastoral, there's nothing
1: like it. Can't wait. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Faye, let's talk about your composition, Hello, Gold Mountain. Uh, On hearing the name, I think many Americans, especially those who know a little bit of Chinese or know a little bit about the history of the Chinese in America, might have assumed that it had something to do with San Francisco. Uh, But it's about another diasporic community entirely, the Jews who fled Europe and found lives in Shanghai. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the inspiration and the ideas behind this piece? And since you originally wrote it for a relatively small – chamber ensemble for the Chatterbird Ensemble, which is a modern chamber ensemble based at Vanderbilt in in Nashville, where you guys live. Uh, what was involved in reworking it for a full orchestra and and one with the kind of the power and the virtuosity of the Philadelphia Orchestra?
0: Okay. okay. Well, the inspiration came from after moving back for me, moving back to the States for many years um, as a mother. Also, uh, the second year after Jeremy, my husband, whom I, I try to convince many years to move the to states. the states, <laughs> and Trump got elected. It was a very dramatic uh, time uh, that in my entire um, life as a as a musician, I never thought I would be inspired. I would go, you know, search inspiration from really a great right. hatred, <laughs> you, <know, laughs> you know, like that but somehow I just my body really felt um ache like a physical ache Mm. so I knew certain times in my life happened a few times when I felt that some of my best work came out so I knew there's something like I didn't even need to think about I would just need to mm, like find the visceral release yeah yes and then the is already there. They just, like, be birthing out. And uh, so uh, at the time, um, I was already also trying to figure out how could I be helpful, mm-hmm. either as a citizen, because, you know, I took voting very seriously, and then I started working with uh, the local uh, refugee and uh, immigrant uh, organizations. Oh, cool. And then, so... And then one lead to another, lead to another. And then the more I learned about uh, the the immigrants and refugee community, and somehow, and at the time, I had been married to Jeremy, the South African Jew, which, you know, things just, you know, I knew about the history of uh, the Shanghai Jewish refugee from at least 15 years ago. I never thought, oh, one day I'm going to write a big piece, da, da, da. Uh, but somehow just things just grew in me and and then no having relatives uh, who, you know, were killed in the Holocaust. Right. And then and then, you, then, n- then before I married Jeremy, it was just in the documentary films in the book. And now uh, we have children, you know. So it's all becoming much more real. Yeah. Than, then it, it came just naturally. And then uh, through... The very divisive time of under Trump got elected, all the tag, and so somehow I just boom. And then working with Chatterbird at the time, and uh, the, the they were brilliant in, in they're already applying for grants, and uh, so they knew one of the grants from called the MAP Fund from New York City that. Uh, it's somehow, they it's like. Let's, let's, can we read the, the description? And then it was like, oh, wow, I got it. And then we basically mapped out the thing in two weeks and then had everyone on board uh, to be community uh, supporters. supporters. So, so that's how, boom. And then, and then the composition was already 60% there, just needed to, to write it out, the notes, basically. Um, and, and then after the premiered, of course, it was so many people had the same kind of mission that were just on board. No one like, oh, well, let me think about it. Everyone was like, okay, how, how, what can we help? Wow. So, so that was like that uh, towards the premiere. And then, of course, as soon as the premiere happened, it was COVID. So we had a plan. Like, I was hoping maybe this year would be 2020, you know, some <laughs> right, sort of the right. moment, and then grew, grew it. And then we paused. And, and I had all that time. But when I wrote, you know, when you write, compose for a uh, chamber orchestra, it's the bone structure is there right. for symphony. It's the same parts, and then you just add like maybe twenty more violins, and then you know it works. <laughs> that's all. I, just that's all. More yeah, just twenty more <laughs> violins and eighteen more basses and stuff. Uh, but it could, that was also my training. Uh, since I was like a t- young teenager, I was that was my specific training. It was to orchestrate for orchestra.
1: Ah, right. Uh, you yeah, know, besides
0: playing, that's all the the fun part. But the real training was writing. 24 staff line wow like that so, that, so was, that was so i was like okay i had all this time and i was practicing and then um and then the the work just got um recognized more with uh orchestras and then thank to my agency a brilliant um, uh, team and then with the lehigh orchestra uh university i was also another institution so uh and they were so on board and then uh, the conductor paul salerni Encouraged us, Faye, hey, we have this all orchestra. We would love to have every student to be involved. Like, I am there. Oh, wow. So, so, so you'd
1: already uh, done an orchestral... I,
0: I didn't, had right. hadn't, but I knew they w- were into it. Uh, okay. We had a meeting, and then at the time, I hadn't even uh, learned how to write music on computer. I was still writing by hand. Wow. The, and then I trained myself <laughs> how to do on Sibelius the entire summer from zero knowledge to entire orchestral work and I submitted in January and then premiere and then yeah made the the the, the testing basically the first piece four months wow. wow that's fast so and then yeah so that was you know when you are ready like I was like i I will do it so uh so that's uh, the, the orchestral version so uh,
1: I, I- I know you were collaborating with, with this guy, Shaneer Blumenkrantz, who plays the Oud. Uh, by the way, I was listening to some of this stuff, and man, Shaneer Blumenkrantz also plays some serious freaking heavy metal.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a wizard.
1: I, I, I don't think I, it should surprise anybody uh, that, you know, because that kind of music with the Phrygian mode, it just lends itself so perfectly to some like metal shredding, right?
0: Oh, it's dude, so shreds. I mean, he was, does. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, my oh my god. It was so fun. Um anyway, tell us about your collaboration with Shaneer Bloomcrafts and and he is playing, right, at the Oh, uh, oh yeah, a, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, I can't he's,
0: wait. He, yeah, he plays in Every Hollow Mountain Concert. Oh, great, great. So I've known Shaneer since uh, 2007 or 6 or 8. Long, long long even yeah, before I met Jeremy actually. Also uh, a Nashville based uh, no, musician? No, no, he's no, no from he's Brooklyn. from Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, cool. yeah he's he's been in New York City and uh uh I was uh, a curator at the, this uh, venue called the Stone in uh, in the East Village in New York, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and then he was uh, he's he's one of the the very active New York downtown um, jazz scene or oh. uh, Silk Road well, as well Silk Road ensemble. ensemble. So uh, and I I had the privilege to invite everybody who I wanted to play with just for a whole month. So <laughs> in East Village, uh, and then Shania uh, was one of them and. Shenia was one of the musicians. We just, we don't talk, you know, he doesn't like to talk. But on stage, he just knows exactly where I want to play. And and then we just, I become someone that I haven't played before. I hadn't, I rediscover myself every time I play with him. He's like that kind of wizard. Wow. Wow. Doesn't happen very often in music at all.
3: My whole life. Yet
1: another successful Chinese-Jewish coupling. In <laughs> music.
3: In, in music. Yeah. Yes, yes. yes. Uh,
1: there are so many. I mean, what is up with that? Somebody's got to write a book. That's,
3: That's a, a different, different. podcast yeah. you're going to do. whole series. Actually,
1: a whole different podcast. It will be like all, all about, right, the connection. Um, Allison, yeah, what were what was your impression when you first heard gold? Help, tell us about your first exposure to Gold, Hello, Gold Mountain.
3: Absolutely. Well, and I have to give full credit to my colleague Amy Russell. Um, I'm grateful for Matthias and everything he said about the vision for this concert. But my colleague, Amy Russell, who's been with Carolina Performing Arts for many years, uh, and was deeply involved with the partnership with Wu Fei and Abby Washburn when they've been here. Um, I know she was in discussion with you about this work and, and definitely wanted you to come back to Carolina to continue this partnership and this evolution and relationship that we've had over the years. So um, it, it all again, it just sort of aligned because obviously I knew you from my Beijing days and then to have it all align here now in this new world, I've been very surprised about how unknown uh, it is here in the States of this Jewish history in China. Um, you know, spending the time that we've spent in China, I just assumed it was common historic knowledge that there's a, a not huge in numbers, but very significant Jewish refugee population um, with, in, in relation to, to China. And here, most of my colleagues, it was a total revelation. Huh. No idea that that was even a thing. It wow. felt almost anathema. like what Jews in china huh and And so that's been thrilling because to me, what's so exciting about to me, success is when a very narrow worldview gets nudged open a little to make room for things that didn't fit before. Yeah. Um, for better or worse, sometimes that sounds negative, but, but often it's just, oh, that's in the world. And I think your work, in addition to being a spectacularly soaring, beautiful piece of music, to now be able to tell that story of world history, not, not, not just Chinese history, not just Eastern European or Jewish history or, or World War II history, but truly world history is, is thrilling.
1: That's that's fantastic. I just cannot wait to hear it. Well, this has just been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Matthias, Allison, and of course, Faye, for taking the time to come in and chat. I am just so psyched to see this. Just two days. I am wondering uh, what to do when the house collapses. I mean, you're going to bring down the house, right? So... I'll...
3: That's oh. what the Philadelphia Orchestra does, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what Wu Fei does.
1: So let's move on to recommendations. Just a very quick reminder first. Our next China conference is just about two months away. Have you gotten your ticket yet? If you have not, it is going to be a full-day conference on November 2nd and includes quite a few guests who have uh, frequented Seneca before uh, or that you know you listeners might remember. Not only our keynote speaker, Yasheng Huang, who I interviewed here two weeks ago, but also people like Ling Ling Wei and Evan Feigenbaum and uh, and and way more than that. So, so get a VIP ticket to not only get priority seating at any of our speaker sessions and workshops, but also to join our team and, and several of those speakers uh, for the night before. That's on November 1st over dinner and a live Seneca taping where we have Eric Olander from the China Global South Project and the amazing Maria Repnikova, and they will be in conversation with Jeremy Goldkorn and me about China and the Global South. So go to www.nextchinaconference.com for more info. All right, on to recommendations. Matthias, is there something that you've read recently or that you've enjoyed that you could recommend to our listeners? You know, um,
2: this is a very confusing time in the world, And it's a very confusing time in the world of arts and culture. We're relying deeply on great institutions. You've talked about some, University of California, Berkeley, University of North Carolina, um, the Philadelphia Orchestra, institutions that have been around 100, 150, 200 years. Um, And it is those... Those institutions and artists that are getting us, the world, through this moment because I'm seeing way too many connections frayed Yeah, and it it actually causes me sort of despair sometimes Um, and in those moments, you know, I do think about music and, you know, there's always the music of J.S. Bach or the music of Mozart. there's music being created today. We face it in, on my left here, and I've spent you know my life advocating for the music of living composers. But there's a piece of music that I come, keep coming back to, and it's the, the trio from Mozart's opera Così fan tutte, and it's called Suave si del vento, and it's a uh, trio in A-flat major. And it is just a moment, it's brief, of peace and serenity, that has been a touchstone of mine for forever.
1: It's a marvelous recommendation. I love Cosi Fantuti. It's really fun. Okay. Allison, what do you got for us?
3: So besides the obvious one that everyone now needs to listen to, Chenier Blumenkrantz's music if they haven't already, both his traditional and shredding (laughs) uh, heavy metal, Um, that's an obvious one. The other one, I'm going to take a bit of a departure from China and and head over to Greek mythology. I've been enjoying Natalie Haynes' podcasts on the BBC World. She is a... Greek uh, mythology scholar, scholar of antiquities, but she is also, she calls herself a recovering stand up comedian. She is brilliant. Oh, my God, that sounds and great. And the, the podcast is from a couple years now. It started before the pandemic. It continued through. But it's Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics. Ooh. They're about 20 to 30 minutes long. And she's got a brilliant one. The one to start with, she does the entire odyssey in 28 minutes.
1: Holy moly.
3: It, and it's brilliant. And she brings on different experts to be her guests. And they're hilarious. They're bite-sized. And she focuses primarily on on leading women in Greek history and greek tragedy and greek comedy and and, but she's fabulous natalie haynes stands up for the classics
1: fantastic recommendation i can't wait to check that out all right all right faye what do you have
3: wow uh i have
0: a couple of things one is uh, one of my favorite bands reunion next year Uh, it's called the sleepy time gorilla museum (laughs) (laughs) so oh my gosh gosh,
1: i've never heard of them Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) i think we need to tell a quick story about them right I mean, so I'm in my apartment with Faye and and Jeremy over one one evening and we're sitting around like having a drink and I have got music playing in the background and suddenly Faye looks at me and like stares at me intently and goes, is this Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum? And of course it is. And I said, how did you know? And so we, we both know them.
0: Yes, uh, I went to Mills College in Oakland, California. That's where the band was born um, and the, when they were um, living. Uh, so I also not only knew, knew the whole band, um, their violinist, Carla. Uh, Carla Kustet is on my first record, uh, uh, A Distant Youth with Fred Frith and me uh so she uh, she's been a huge influence she's, she's huge amazing check she, out her, she, other her other band, band charming,
1: charming hostess.
0: hostess oh yes yes it, it's, it's
1: bulgarian is. it's like it's like balkan music which is crazy yeah. and,
0: her. and her solo uh, record on zadek as well just her violin she has this incredible ability of playing like a uh, extremely technical um like her voice will be half a quarter beat behind her violin bowing and then it's still incredibly beautiful you know it's like technically extreme and beauty and she has got this, got this whale sound she can sing super high like sound like a
1: wailing, <laughs> so, so <laughs>
0: like, like a, sawing. a sawing sound it's really incredible yeah, yeah. so yeah so that's uh, my recommendation Sleepy
1: Time Girl Museum they have three albums which I just think are, are three of the best records uh, it's like my favorite of, of, well they're all great but um of natural history, grand openings and closings. Those are the two that you should start with. Um, they're they're astonishing. The whole family. So they 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 have an earlier incarnation that I actually included. Gene, uh, I don't know if you knew Gene, Geneune, uh, but it was called Idiot Flesh before oh, yeah. that. Oh,
0: Idiot Flesh. Yes, of
1: course. And then before that, oh, wow. they were yeah. yeah. Before that, before that. Uh, they were Acid Rain, and they were in Barrington Hall, which is one of the infamous um co-ops in Berkeley uh, bands like the dead kennedys came out of there it it was an, a really really famous place but um yeah i mean we we used to play shows with them when they were acid rain and idiot or i guess be before Idiot Flesh. but when i was in college yeah wow, wow. that's that's
0: good old time yeah oh my God. so interesting yeah. The, the, the bay area groups are
1: really they were the best there. yeah yeah yeah, yeah for, sure. for sure all right okay so my recommendation So, Allison, Jeremy interviewed you for Ask to Tea, and at the end you recommended a hot pot restaurant uh, in the area. I could only just shake my head sadly at your recommendation because there is one that is so much better. (laughs) Bring it. Okay, so you talked about So Hot. The the really good one, it's not that far away from there either. It's called Good Harvest or Da Fung Shao. I will take you there. We will eat and it will be so good. Uh, One of the things about it that's best is they have a really, really well-stocked, uh, condiment bar where you can just really make dipping sauce to your own quite exacting specifications. Um, anyway, just just okay, so that's, that's good noted. if you're in the triangle. Yeah. Or, or, you know, so I have to give another less geographically restrictive uh, recommendation, which is that a good friend turned me on to this very young Sicilian guitar virtuoso named Matteo Mancuso, who plays fingerstyle electric, but he Hughes very much to like the best period in electric fusion, in, in jazz fusion. So his stuff reminds me of like John Schofield or, or like um like John McLaughlin or Alan Holdsworth or Frank Gombali or, or Scott Henderson. These the fusion guitarists from like the eighties, the the high the heyday of that. Um but very distinct. Very much his own style, uh just super versatile and just amazing tone. Uh, lots of his stuff is on YouTube. He's just amassed a huge following there, so check him Ma- out. Matteo Mancuso is his name. All right, you guys, thank you I so much. It. What a what a what a blast! Uh, can't wait to see you guys again, and I'm really really looking forward to it. Thanks once again, Matthias.
2: A great pleasure for me and an honor to be with uh, Wu Fei and Alison Friedman here. Um, and, and such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Kaiser, for having me on the show. You're very you. welcome.
1: And I, I really look forward to it. And congratulations. On, and thank you for bringing the orchestra here. Well, thank you for the important work you do. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Kaiser. Thank you.
1: The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of The Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at com, or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter, or as it's now called, X or something, Um, uh, or on Facebook or on any of the other damn socials at at TheChinaProj. And be sure to check out all of the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.